Shall we pray together before we begin this morning? Father, I just want to thank you so much that this morning you have spoken to us about the love of Jesus. And I'm so grateful to you, Lord, that you loved us so much that you sent Jesus to die for us. He is the one who captivates our every moment, who fills our every thought, because he has done such mighty things in our lives. And Father, I thank you that you've taken us who were no people at all, and you've made us into a royal priesthood. Father, what words do we have to express our love to you? I just pray in Jesus' name, Lord, that our sheer obedience to your word should show how much we really love you. Thank you that Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And forgive us, Lord, that so often we think we love Jesus because we think it's a sort of emotional, hand-clapping thing. And yet, Father, this morning I'm just so conscious of the fact that it is the acid test of our love whether we obey his commandments or not. Father, I would ask in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that you will just move upon us. And Father, as we learn about these basic nitty-gritty things of fellowship life, that, Father, you will change our thinking and fundamentally, Father, that you will alter our ways before you. Oh, Father, we ask you to come and by your Spirit to really convict us, even this morning, as we study who the real poor are in the midst. Father, please take my words and find them acceptable and use them for yourself in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Praise your wonderful name. <clears throat> Those of you who were here a few weeks ago when we had the third in the fellowship talks will remember that I talked about why it is in the Old and the New Testament we are told that there will always be the poor among us. And you remember the conclusion that we came to, that actually it is God who is the owner of all things. There's no one with good looks, no one with intelligence, no one with a good physique, no one with a Bible teaching ministry, no one with any of these things who can claim them as his own. All things belong unto God. All money belongs to God, all property belongs to God, all cars belong unto God. And we learnt that he distributes to every individual as he desires to do. He has a right to do with his own as he wants, and so he distributes. And that's why in the body of Christ, we have some who are financially rich, and others who are financially poorer. Not poor, poorer than those who are richer. And what can you say, except that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, and he distributes as he desires. But I think we saw very clearly that every one of us is rich in certain ways. And the day is going to come when every one of us will give an account before the Lord as, we, as to how we have used the gifts, the talents, whatever you'd like to call them, that the Lord has given us. And I think we ought to be very grateful this morning that we're in a fellowship situation. Because it's only in a fellowship situation that our gifts that we've received from the Lord can be used to the maximum extent. We have wonderful opportunity, as far as fellowship life is concerned, to really pour our lives out as an offering to the Lord, even through one another. All right. Another conclusion we came to was this, that having sufficient clothes and having sufficient food, you were to be content. You know? And we saw last time how so many people are discontent with what they've got. 
and we saw that it was really like stabbing yourself every day because you were constantly envying what other people had got instead of thanking God for what you had got. Now this morning I want to turn to what is logically the next step in fellowship life and that is to start looking at who are the poor in the midst. I don't mean those who are poorer, I mean those who are actually the poor in the fellowship and in the church of Jesus Christ as a whole. Who are the poor and who do we have responsibility towards? Now this is vitally important. By the way, you'll find in the New Testament that it's really down to earth and nitty gritty over problems like this. So many of us have come into spirituality Um, you know, we've been filled with the Spirit, we've come into fellowship life, and we think, oh, wonderful, all it consists of is praising God, worshipping the Lord, and doing nothing else. Well, it does consist of praising the Lord, of course. That's our first duty. But it also consists of something else. And I've gone to so many fellowship groups, and as I look at their faces, there's a rawness. It's the only way I can describe it. Because these people have constant teaching, They have constant praise and worship, but do you know their basic fundamental needs are not being met within the group that they're worshipping among. And I think, and so often I think this when I stand at the front and, and speak to groups like that, I think what a tragedy that the bowels and mercies of Christ aren't showing on a practical level in the midst of this group of people. You've no idea the number of people who in, in fellowship groups feel lonely, left out, as if no one cares about them, you know? Simply because no one is bothered to see that they have these particular needs. Now let me show you just how down-to-earth the Bible is about this. There's no messing about as far as the New Testament is concerned. Let's just have a look at three fairly short scriptures before I really get on to the main topic. Uh, turn first of all to Galatians 2, the book of Galatians. And chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. And here is Paul talking about how the church in Jerusalem accepted his ministry. And he went to see James, Cephas, and John. And here's what happened. Galatians 2, verse 9. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars... I love that phrase. You know, he doesn't say they are pillars. He said they just seem to me to be pillars in the church perceived the grace that was given unto me, they gave to me and Barnabas the right hands of fellowship, that we should go unto the heathen. Who are the heathen, by the way? They're the Gentiles. That's nice, isn't it? You know, that we should go to the heathen and that they should go unto the circumcision, who were the Jews. Verse 10. Now, verse 9 deals with the spiritual ministry. Verse 10 is what they asked them to remember especially. Only they would that we should remember the poor. The same which I also was forward to do. In other words, I had a willingness in my mind to do it. And you'll notice, by the way, everywhere Paul and Barnabas went, if they went to a rich church, they immediately thought, great, we're going to have a collection for the poor church back in Jerusalem. You remember, we've seen a few uh, studies ago, how the church in Jerusalem was really bankrupt and poor. And everywhere they went, they had collections, you know, and Titus was sent to take collections up for the poor church back in Jerusalem. That's how down to earth it was. Let's have a look at another one. Acts 11, where we have a spiritual gift in operation, 
and their response, their response then to the spiritual gift. In Acts 11, and verse 27, we have the ministry of prophets. And beloved, I believe that the day is coming when we're going to see prophets operating again in the midst of the church of Jesus Christ. And they will tell us events that are to come that will affect us. Verse 27. And in these days came prophets from Jerusalem unto Antioch. Acts 11, 27. Verse 28. And there stood up one of them named Agabus and signified by the Spirit that there should be great dearth, which means famine and drought, throughout all the world which came to pass in the days of Claudius, Claudius Caesar. Isn't that lovely? He actually tells us when this uh, prophecy was fulfilled. Now there was going to be great dearth. Oh, what should we do then as Christians? Oh, we must pray. That's right, quite right too. So we all get into our little prayer groups and get our prayer mats out and we start praying. The trouble is most Christians stop at that point. The Bible doesn't. Now look what happened. They not only came together having been warned, but verse 29, then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea. And they were saying, well look, in these days of plenty, those people are without. Now what are they going to do when the dearth hits? So we must have a look again. And we're going to save up that which we can afford and we're going to send it to them. Do you see how down-to-earth, nitty-gritty it is? What would most Christians do today? Oh, well, we'll pray about it. You know? In this uh, type of context, no. They automatically came up with the goods as far as their brothers and sisters were concerned. Verse 30, which also they did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. All right, third scripture. Let's go to James 2. Now, I really love the book of James, as some of you know. And I'll tell you why I love the book of James. It's not because Luther didn't like it either. I love the book of James because it cuts right through all the spiritual hogwash, right? It's down to earth. You can't read the book of James and be comfortable. You know, you really can't. Sooner or later, it's going to hit something, and I imagine James as a sort of angry young man of the early church. He's the type of chap who would stand up in the midst of a fellowship and say, oh, it's hogwash what you're doing. There we are. We wouldn't last long, would we, with someone like that in the midst? Or really, oh, it's such hypocrisy. And that's the type of phrase he would use. Now, look what he says. And here is a definition of a person who is poor. And we'll see that poverty has changed quite a lot. Verse 15, if a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food. Now that's the definition of poverty. It's changed awfully in our generation. The true poor in these days were the people who didn't have enough to eat and didn't have decent clothes on their back. Now the picture is that here's a brother who loves the Lord. He has done nothing wrong himself, but he's in desperate need. His clothes are hanging off him. He has nothing and he's starving and he knocks on your front door. And you say, brother, lovely to see you, you know? And then you say, oh, I don't think you'd better come in. Your feet are a bit dirty. And he says, well, brother, I'm in terrible need. I haven't ate for three days or four days and I just have absolutely nothing and the clothes just hanging from my back. Oh, brother, I can see you're in need. I wonder what happened to your shirt. 
You know, no, don't, don't, I won't hug you. Thank you very much. Not this morning. Um, but I'll tell you what we'll do. My wife and I will really get on our knees later on this evening and we'll really pray that God provides for you. All right? God bless you. Great. See you at the fellowship and close the door. And that's it. And so he goes on. What's he say? Verse 16. And one of you say unto them, Depart in peace. Oh, hallelujah. You know, you don't doesn't disturb you in any way. You're able in the spirit to get above what has been presented at your front door. Isn't that lovely? And then you say, depart in peace, be ye warmed and filled, notwithstanding ye give them not those things which are needful to the body. He says, goodness gracious, he says, what does it profit anyone? And he says, a faith like that is totally bankrupt as far as the real nitty-gritty needs are concerned. And yet we do it constantly. Isn't it awful? Of course, today, we don't have needy in quite that way. Most people can get social security or unemployment benefit or widow's pensions or other things like that. And so most people have sufficient money to actually get enough food and probably just about enough clothing as well as a roof over their heads. Generally speaking, my experience in fellowship activity is this, that the poor now have changed enormously. Do you know the number of people who've joined our fellowship who have been poor, not because their income doesn't cover their basic needs, but for another and much more sinister reason. People who have got into HP debt have bank overdrafts up to here. Now, their income covers their basic needs. The trouble is their income doesn't repay their HP needs. You see? I could list off so many people that I've met here and in the other places that I go to who are in total debt, situation of debt. And it's absolutely bankrupting, these people. Now, on an income level, they're not poor. Their basic needs are met. The trouble is, they get the HP man knocking at the door. They've got the bank manager ringing them up saying, excuse me, you have an overdraft of 500 pounds and you haven't paid a penny of it. You see? Now, these are the new poor. Now, we've got to analyze this type of situation because it's one that confronts us constantly. May I say this? I have a dream that in our fellowship we won't have anyone in debt. Hallelujah. That's my dream. That's my faith as well because I believe we're going to get to that situation. But what we've got to see is that that type of free, easy credit life is nothing but the spirit of the world that's outside this meeting place. And we've got to face up to that. Even if you're up to your eyes in HP debt, you've got to face up to that fact immediately. Isn't it funny that so many Christians who say, oh, the world's finished, we're not going to have anything to do with the world, are then quite open to going to a worldly system to get what they want now. Many of these people, and by the way, have got HP on non-essentials. You know, they've got things, they've got luxury things. Because they think, oh dear, I haven't got fitted carpet. You know, I haven't got nice velvet curtains that drape along the floor. Dear, oh dear, oh, I'm ever so poor, right? <laughs> and that's the type of thinking. I haven't got Venetian blinds when I want Venetian blinds. We don't have a, a wonderfully exotic garden with a, a greenhouse at the back. Oh, I'm terribly poor. He's got it, and I haven't got it. And so they go along and say, well, how am I going to get it? Easy credit comes on the scene. And what they're actually doing, and what we've all done, 
at times. We've mortgaged our future for the, the satisfaction of present needs. Now, it's the spirit of the world to do that. And you know, it's the most bankrupting thing. It's the thing that's making our country poor as well as the Western nations poor. We're bankrupting ourselves. I was thinking about this, of course, earlier on this morning. I've been up quite a long time this morning. And uh, I was thinking about this, and the Lord really showed me something. I wonder whether we could just have a look at one of the temptations of Jesus. Turn to Matthew chapter 4. And the Lord just spoke to me so clearly and said, this is exactly what the devil did to Jesus, or tried to do to Jesus. Turn to Matthew 4. Now, in verse 8, we get the third temptation. Remember, please, that when Adam fell, he handed over temporarily this world and all the kingdoms of this world into the hands of the enemy, into the hands of Satan, so that Satan today is the god of this world. Now, look what happened. Here's the temptation. And do you know, I've been tempted in exactly the same way as this, as I expect most of us have been. Verse 8, again, the devil taketh him up into an exceeding high mountain and showeth him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. And by doing that, the devil saying, by the way, these are mine. Look, here's Nepal. And look at the glory of Nepal. There's Britain, you know, or Britannicus, or whatever it was called in those days. And, and there's the blue people who used to live there. You know, not because it was cold, of course. It was a bit of woad that they used to put on. There's America, all the wealth of America, which is going to be discovered. Here is Angola, all the diamond wealth of Angola. And he showed everything to Jesus. And look what he said in verse 9. And he saith unto him, All these things will I give thee, if thou wilt fall down and worship me. In other words, Jesus, why are you waiting for all, this kingdom, all these kingdoms to become yours. Why do you have to carry on living through all the temptations and go through agony the next three, in the next three years and go to the cross and die to gain these kingdoms? Why, you can have it now! Why wait? You see, I'll give you them right now. Of course, uh, you're going to have to pay for them. And how have you got to pay for them? You've got to fall down and worship me. And Jesus, of course, resisted it utterly and what did he say? Verse 10, Then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And yet, you know, we're tempted the same way. The devil says, Why wait for that luxurious bit of furniture? You can have it right now. It doesn't matter that you bring yourself into debt or into bondage. All right, what therefore is the teaching of the Bible concerning debt? What is the teaching of the Bible about it? Well, let's see. Let's go to the Old Testament, then to the New Testament. Let's go to Deuteronomy 28, first of all. Deuteronomy 28. And Deuteronomy 28 is a marvelous passage. This is the blessing and the cursing that God promised to the people of Israel. Now, it's divided into two sections. The first says, these are the blessings that can be yours. The second section says, these are the cursings that will come upon you. And it was dependent upon one thing. So let's read verse 1, first of all. And it shall come to pass, if thou shalt hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God, 
Do you see what it says? If you will hearken diligently unto the voice of the Lord thy God. If you will not just hear the word, but actually put the word into operation. If you will do that, then you will be blessed. And it says to observe and to do all his commandments, which I command thee this day, that the Lord thy God will set thee on high above all the nations of the earth. And then he lists all the other blessings, and if you want a really blessed time, you read through these blessings. But look at one of the blessings. Verse 12. The Lord shall open unto thee his good treasure, the heaven to give the rain unto thy land in his season, and to bless all the work of thy hand. And thou shalt lend unto many nations, and thou shalt not borrow. Isn't that wonderful situation? Why, you Israelis, if you obey me fully, you're going to lend loads of money away. And do you know, by the way, as a Christian, you can lend money. Isn't that lovely? Praise the Lord. Uh, wouldn't it be wonderful if everyone in our fellowship had money to lend? That'd be thrilling. That's what he's saying. Israel, you are going to be so blessed financially, you'll have plenty of money to lend, but listen, you're not going to borrow from anyone. And you'll have certain kings saying, oh, excuse me, do you want easy credit? Easy credit? What do I want easy credit for? No, do you want some? And that's going to be the type of situation. You'll notice, by the way, as far as Britain is concerned, we are in debt up to our ears. And it's tragic. Every year, the debt, the interest repayments on our debt is equivalent to how many schools is it? Eight schools and three hospitals, is it? Something like that. That's the type of corruption that comes into a nation. But here is the blessing. If you're obedient, you're going to be a lender, but you'll never be a debtor. And then the second half of the chapter deals with the opposite. If you don't listen to the word of God, well, then it's going to be different. And look what it says. Let me take just three verses of it. Verse 33. The fruit of thy land and all, the fruit, uh, all thy labors shall a nation which thou knowest not eat up. Thou shalt be only oppressed and crushed always. Do you know that in the Old Testament, any man who was in debt was seen as a man in an oppressed condition? He was seen as a slave because there were others who could come and actually cause fear in his life. Have you ever been in debt? I mean badly in debt? It's absolutely appalling, you know? I know people that haven't slept for the last three or four years, not true deep sleep, because of the these debts that have piled up. I know people who feel as if they're in bondage. They're afraid every time a letter comes through the door because it's going to be a letter from someone that they've borrowed money from. That's what this is talking about. You're going to be oppressed. You're going to be crushed if you're not careful. Verse 41. Thou shalt beget sons and daughters, but thou shalt not enjoy them, you see, because you've mortgaged their future. And you don't have enough money to give what they want. They can't go on the school outings because you've got the HP debt for the video that you've just bought. Oh, we must have a video for the Bible studies. You can buy video Bible studies now. I've got to have one. Oh, yes, really? Well, well, you may as well come along and see the real thing. <laughs> Praise the Lord, you see? You're not going to enjoy these. You've mortgaged their future. You will have nothing but the rewards of your the debts that you've come into, for they shall go into captivity. And verse 44 is really the verse. If you don't obey the voice of the Lord, he shall lend to thee, but thou shalt not lend to him. He shall be the head, and thou shalt be the tail. 
In other words, you're going to have someone giving you orders and you've got to obey. It's not going to be the tail wagging the dog, you know, though some Christians think it is. No, no, it's going to be the dog wagging the tail. And you're going to have people actually coming along and saying, uh, excuse me, I'm not, uh, I'm not going to pass your checks. You owe us so much money, your checks are going to bounce now. And so you write out the milk bill, you know, a check for the milk bill. And suddenly you've got the milkman now knocking on your door. He wants payment. Oh dear, there's someone else. Now you're cut off the telephone. You know, because, uh, of course, you can't pay these debts. Not because your income isn't big enough for your basic needs, but because you've got yourself into an anti-biblical situation where you're in HP debt. God says, if you're under blessing, you don't get into a debt situation. And let me tell you something, by the way. The Jews couldn't come into these blessings because they were fallen. The marvelous thing for us is Christ has come into all these blessings. He obeyed the law utterly. And in Christ, we can come into all of these blessings. I love reading Deuteronomy 28 and claiming them all for me. Hallelujah. That's how greedy you can get. Lord, hallelujah, this is what I can be in. But you've got to bow the knee to the word of God. You see? All right, that's the Old Testament. The New Testament puts it beautifully. And in case there are any sitting here saying, oh dear, oh dear. I've really done it this time, up to my neck. Turn to Romans chapter 13. You'll find a very comforting verse. Well, at first it's not comforting, but it will be when I've explained what the Greek says. All right? And verse 8 is lovely. Just the first part. Owe no man anything. That's the statement. Except for one thing, it goes on to say. Owe no man anything but to love one another. And what this means is, by the way, that we're all in debt to one another as far as love's concerned. Do you see? And therefore, I walk in, and you're all in debt to me as far as love is concerned. And I have the right, by the way, to say, I want full payment of my debt this morning. You see? And that means you've got to scurry about uh, and hug me as best as possible. Don't ru hug Ron too hard, by the way, this morning. But uh, I have a right to claim the debt of love that you owe me, you see. And by the way, you can also come up to me and say, excuse me, Raj, you're also in debt to me, as far as love's concerned. And so I've got to pay my debt. But love is one thing. The first bit refers to money. Owe no man anything. And the way it's presented in the King James, you imagine these Romans, no man owing anything. And here's Paul just reminding them, you're absolutely right not to owe anyone anything. Well, that's not actually what it says. In the Greek, it says, stop continuing to owe people anything. Stop continuing to owe, is what it says. And the, in the Greek, it shows they were all in debt. And Paul actually writes them, and he says, well, we've got to stop that, you see. And this is what we've got to do. Now, if you are in debt... The thing you've got to do is to ask God about it and confess the worldliness that has caused you to be in that situation. Don't get bogged down and condemned because you're in debt. What you've got to do is to say, well, Lord, here I am in debt, but I know it's not the best way, and so I'm going to ask you to solve my debt problem. And Father, I promise that once the debt problem is solved, I'm not entering into worldliness anymore. Now, people who are in this type of debt situation are the new poor that we have in the midst of the fellowship. 
and we've got to help them. But the trouble is, if that worldly way of thinking is ingrained, if you just give them money, they say, isn't that wonderful? God supports what we've done. Hallelujah. We've been 800 pounds in debt to the HP man, and God's met it. Oh, glory. Hallelujah. Quick, let's get some more HP. And then they get the HP and say, well, God, it just gives God a breathing space to provide. You know, like 25 years or whatever it is. And he'll provide in that time. Why? We can have the whole place absolutely decked out. You know? Oh, we only need a little gas stove, but we can have a gas stove that fills the whole kitchen. You know, a fitted gas stove. Wonderful. Where actually you cook on the inside. You know, you walk in the gas stoves all the way around. Fantastic. Because that's the type of prosperity we're in. It's not the type of prosperity we're in. That's the type of prosperity the world's in. The type of prosperity we're in is actually being content with what you have and paying your way. And so the important thing is we don't just provide financially for these people. We've got to provide a new training for their way of thinking. Do you see? Now, it may happen that we find people who finally, through the help of the fellowship, get free of all debt. If they get back into HP debt again, we have no responsibility to them. That's the answer. Otherwise, it's like pouring money down an endless drain. No, they're going to have to suffer until they come to their right mind, you see. And you will find, by the way, in the fellowship, that the fellowship is very, very good on things like this, but there is a time when they say no. We've got to make sure we provide on every level. Now, what actually does this verse say? This verse says this. Don't buy anything that you want. Buy only those things that you can afford to get. That's what it actually says, you see. And make sure that you control yourself over this. Now, having said that, there are one or perhaps two exceptions to this rule. And this would be a great relief to you who've got mortgages. <laughs> a mortgage is the only, really the only type of debt that is permissible. And the reason that it is permissible is this. In the Old Testament, if you had land, you had freedom. If a man owned his own land and his own house, he had freedom because no one could kick him, kick him around. Isn't that lovely? You see? And so, if you are purchasing your own land and your own house, a mortgage is permissible because it is granting you freedom. It doesn't bring you into further bondage. The other thing about a mortgage is you can sell it, sell the house at any time and pay it off. But that's one debt. Incidentally, Ros and I happen to believe that God wants seven-year mortgages and no more. And we've got a longer mortgage than that. So guess what we do? We ask God that within seven years that mortgage is going to be paid off. Now all we're doing is to say, well, Lord, we want to come into your perfect will. We're not in it, but Lord, in Jesus' name, we commit it to you. That's what you've got to do over all of your debts. There is just one other... Well, this is a questionable one. In the situation in which we find ourselves today, um, we find that people actually work a long way out of the area and they actually need transport. They also now, the local fellowship has changed because now the locality is not necessarily within walking distance. And so a car sometimes, for some people, becomes necessary. If it is necessary and a necessity, that perhaps is another exception. However, I'm talking really about thing luxuries around the house. You know, save up for them and then purchase them with cash. That's the message of the Bible. You see? And this is the push that we constantly get. And so it says pay your debts 
Exercise self-control and don't purchase things you want. Purchase things you need and save up for those that you actually want. Basically, God wants every household and every individual providing for his own needs. You see? That's what it's all about. Turn to 2 Thessalonians 3. 2 Thessalonians. And chapter 3. Verse 12, and this is what the Lord wants. And then I'm going to actually say who are the poor in the midst. Verse 12, now them that are such we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. And basically that, that is God's purpose it, for every man, that we should all work and that we should eat our own bread which our own hand has provided and God will bless us in the work. In the early church they were quite ruthless about this. When people came in um, they were given food and provision and shelter for three days. They had three days to find a job. And if they didn't get a job within three days they were booted out the front door. That's real Christian love. Hallelujah. In other words what they were saying is why should all these people who are not rich themselves provide for you when you're a simply a loafer and a waster. You see? And that's the rule they had. Three days, and then you were out, and you were on your own. Quite a good rule. In those days, of course, you could always find work. Everyone wanted work. Now, in our situation, we have a slightly different days. There is unemployment uh, in the midst of the body of Jesus Christ. You see? There is unemployment in our society. But, of course, the great thing is, there is unemployment pay. Now that provides the basic needs, but nothing more. Okay, but what did we say last week that the poor were? How do we define the poor? We defined the poor not in terms of money, but anyone who was dependent on someone else. And can you see the point that the people who are unemployed are rich in one area, they've got plenty of time on their hands. Hallelujah. And there are other people in the fellowship who may have enough money but they're very poor as far as time is concerned. Now, what's going to happen? The rich have got to provide for the poor. Do you know that some of the richest, fin financially rich people in the fellowship today are some of the poorest in other areas? And some who are will consider themselves some of the poor of the fellowship are very rich in other ways. This time is absolutely crucial. I think I said last time we studied this, that those who are rich in time sometimes get into a sort of self-centeredness. And they sit in their little bedsits and they say, no one's been to visit me. I've been completely free for the last month and not one person has come. I've sat in my chair and I've waited all evening for someone to come. Do you know, I'd love to have a month of free evenings. <laughs> what I couldn't do with a month of free evenings, fantastic. Now, what are you doing like that? God is going to judge you. For he will say to you, you had all that time, how have you used it? Whereas there are other people who are poor in terms of time in the fellowship. One of the biggest disgraces I've ever seen in my life is when I go to some fellowships where there's perhaps just one elder and he's doing all the ministry and all the people come to him for ministry. And do you know, that man ought to decorate his own house and do his own garden. The problem is, he doesn't get time to do it. 
Because every evening, when he should be decorating his house, perhaps, or should be digging his garden, there's a whole queue of people waiting for ministry. And so he ministers. And these people who come, oh, they've always got an evening to be ministered to, but they've never got an evening to minister to him in return. Isn't that funny? You know? And sometimes I go in their houses, and I actually see there's wallpaper that needs replacing. I find the garden is absolutely overgrown. And sometimes they apologize and they say, I'm sorry about my garden. I just haven't had a second. I work all day, then all evening I'm busy ministering. And I actually say sometimes, well, why don't the people in your fellowship that you've ministered to come and help? Oh, well, they never seem to see it. Have you ever done that? Have you ever gone to someone for ministry and actually looked around their house to see, you know, how is their house actually getting on? You know, can I in some way perhaps help them? Are they the poor? in the fellowship, in a particular way. Well, we've got to start doing this type of thing. We've got to start seeing. And if you've got time, you must help the poor, you know. Have you thought, by the way, of those people who have ministries in our own fellowship? And I don't just mean the elders, although they're included. And I don't just mean the deacons, though they're included, or the leaders. I'm talking about people like the tape people. Do you know there are people who push out the tapes and they spend hour after hour after hour doing the, the tapes, and very often they don't have time to do the ordinary things around their own house. Ever thought about that as you grab hold of your tapes and rush home? Ever thought? It's part of ministering to the poor, do you see? And this is what we've got to see. There are people who are dependent upon others in other ways than financial ways. And we've got to make sure that these people are catered for. By the way, an obvious group of people are, of course, the older members of the fellowship. When the fellowships begin, normally they're full of single young people. You know, ooh, great, hallelujah. And you all meet together and you praise the Lord. It's absolutely wonderful. And then someone puts a spanner in the work. They get married, you know. And suddenly you've got a married couple in the midst. And then the number of married couples increase and then the children start coming. Oh, dear, oh, dear. You weren't quite as free, or you aren't quite as free when the children appear. And then, have you noticed, as fellowships grow, you get different groups then coming into the fellowship. And one group that comes in, the elderly begin appearing. Now, these are people who, because of physical age, cannot decorate their own houses. Do you know, I believe, that in our fellowship, those people should have the best decorated uh, houses in the whole fellowship. Because we should see, these are the poor and the dependent. They really need others to help them. I wonder whether you know, or have visit, whether you've ever visited the house of someone in our own fellowship who may be termed as elderly. I'm not going to put an age on that, you see. But I wonder whether you've ever been there and actually looked at the house and thought to them yourself, well, it's quite easy for me to do this, but I wonder whether they can do it. These are our responsibilities, and I've got to spell it out to the fellowship. It is a disgrace. And I'll tell you this, my heart has just been broken sometimes. I've seen lovely Christians. There's one woman in London. I remember she was the secretary of Enoch Powell when he was Minister of Health. She was a lovely woman. won't mention her name. She had a very high job in the civil servant. She was a devoted Christian. She plowed herself into the life of the fellowship. And then she got old, and off she went to her home. Oh, they visited her once a week. And there she was, surrounded by heathens, by non-Christians. She was all by herself in this room. And I'll tell you, she was so lonely and unhappy. And that's why I want to say 
that we have certain people in the fellowship who have a vision for this. They have a vision that one day we're going to have a place where our elderly can go. Oh yes, the rapture might occur at any time. Sure. And that means any time, including 50 years' time. You see? And why, is it, why should it be that people have devoted themselves to the work of the Lord? Why should they, they be pushed into non-Christian homes and so on? This is part of our responsibility. And God must provide. I want to see people treated the way pit ponies are treated. Pit ponies, you know, there's a society for pit ponies. They've worked hard down the mines for 12 years and now we're going to give them the best. Isn't it tragic that we Christians don't even do what coal miners do to their pit ponies and make sure that these people get the best? God must convict us and we've got to come into this and really understand what it's about, you see? Okay, there are other people who are poor. There are people who are young Christians. There are people who are weaker Christians. And these people have got to be looked after. Do you know that by providing for the full-time elder that we have, you're providing for the poor in that way? Oh, you might say, well, honestly, I provide and I never see him. Never comes. Hallelujah, he doesn't come. He's busy dealing with the poor, you see? Dealing with those people who need help and need encouragement. This is part of providing. That's why when you give to the general fund, you're providing for the poor. There are people you don't know about who are being provided from the general fund. This is part of our responsibility. Anyone who is in need is a poor person, no matter which area that need comes into. And it is a blot on the body of Christ if these needs are not being met. These, this is nitty-gritty. And I'm sorry this morning if you want high-flying spiritual stuff. This is high-flying spiritual stuff actually, but it's the very nitty-gritty. It will be a disgrace if we ever have people in our fellowship who've devoted themselves to the Lord, who then have to go into the world in their old age to find succor. And we must make sure it doesn't happen, you see. All right, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5, and let's see an obvious group who are the needy. <clears throat> One Timothy five, and here you've got an interesting division. You you've got widows talked about here. You've got widows indeed. You've got widows not indeed, and you've got what I call merry widows. <laughs> you see. And we have different responsibilities as far as these are concerned. By the way, today I think I would include in this category people who find themselves divorced. You know people who are in, in a position where they have no husband to protect, protect them. I would think it comes under widows. These widows, actually, were specifically people, of course, who, uh, whose husbands had been martyred very often for Christ. Do you see? And, that is, and Paul says, well, I've got to devote almost a whole chapter, or certainly half a chapter, to these people. Do you see how nitty-gritty the Bible is? Really down-to-earth about this. They've got to be provided for. And at the moment the day of Pentecost came, the widows were provided for. They were given food. There was no widow's pension in this day. Right? Now, of course, today, widows have widow's pensions, so you're not going to get a handout on that type of level. I'm terribly sorry about that to you. But, but you see, they provided for them. And actually, it was the deacons. Uh, the deacons were appointed because of problems over the distribution to the widows. But look what it says. Verse 3, Honour widows that are widows indeed. Now, I'll explain what a widow indeed is. 
verse 4 actually tells us, though you probably wouldn't get it from verse 4, verse 4, but if any widow have children or nephews, let them learn first to show piety at home and to requite their parents, for that is good and acceptable before God. Now what is it saying? Well, there are some widows here, W for a widow, who have children, who have nephews, who have relatives around them. Now, what Paul is saying is, that type of widow is not a widow indeed. And what he's saying in verse 4 is that the relatives have got to provide for the widow. You see, what was happening is, certain people have widows. They didn't like their mother. They didn't like this particular relative. And so they thought, great, the church can look after her. You see? And so they said, well, it's over to you now. And they went off and enjoyed themselves. And he says, oh, no. He says, if a widow has relatives, the relatives have got to look after the widow and provide the immediate needs. A widow indeed is a widow who doesn't have any relatives. She's got absolutely no one to care for her. And of course, as we saw a few weeks ago, the only answer was really prostitution or something like that. Now in the church, they cared for a widow indeed. Now verse 5 deals with a widow indeed. Now, she that is a widow indeed and desolate, you see, got no one to protect her, no one to look after her, trusteth in God, and this is what she should do, she continueth in supplications and prayers night and day. She should be a holy woman. Verse 6, and here's the merry widow, right? She's rather pleased that this man she's been linked with for all these years has gone, and at last she's free, you know. I think... Uh, there is a Noel Coward song about such a widow as this, you know, in the bar on the Piccola Marina, I think it's called. Uh, you can look that up afterwards, of course. Uh, look what it says, verse 6. But she that liveth in pleasure is dead while she liveth. And what he's saying is this. God has given that woman a very valuable commodity, time on her hands. And what's she doing? She's using it for herself. This is total self-indulgence that uh, she's gone into, into pleasure. She's enjoying her life for herself. He says, well, she's good as dead, as far as God is concerned. And she will give a, an account of how she has used her life. Uh, verse 7, and these things give in charge that they may be blameless. In other words, Timothy, teach your flock these things. And that's why I'm doing it this morning, you see, because we need to know these things. Verse 8, but if any provide not for his own, this is a man with a family responsibility, if any provide not for his own family, and especially for those of his own house, he has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. In other words, the way you act outwardly should demonstrate the faith that you have inwardly. And if you are not providing for your own family, you're worse than an infidel, not just an infidel, worse than an infidel, and you've denied the faith effectively. Then verse 9, now certain widows had jobs in the body of Jesus Christ and there were widows with time on their hands who were appointed into positions. I'm going to come on to women's ministry in the body of Christ, by the way, and you'll see two ministries that we don't have in our fellowship at the moment, but I hope we're going to get. And one of them is the widow's ministry, you see. This is the industrious widow. Let not a widow be taken into the number, enrolled, that is, in other words, given a, a ministry within the fellowship under threescore years old. It's got to be over 60. Having been the wife of one woman, and look at this, verse 10, well reported of for good works. What did I say? Sorry, that's right. I beg your pardon. I'd better read that again. 
having been the wife of one man. Verse 10, well reported of for good works. If she has brought up children, isn't that lovely? And that shows us the type of ministry this woman will have. She'll help people with their children, you know. We need women like this around in the fellowship. If she has lodged strangers, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has relieved the afflicted, if she has diligently followed every good work. But the younger widows refuse. Don't appoint them. Because you see, this job meant they had to go from house to house to house to help people in the ministry, to help people with their, their children, to help strangers and so on. They had to go from house to house. Now, the trouble with a younger widow is, got all the time in the world on their hands. Great. They're just going to drift around. And you see them. The body of Christ has got them today. They drift in for a cup of coffee, and 10 hours later, they drift out. Got nothing to do. And there's the busy housewife. Got so much to do around, you know. And there's this person. Got nothing to do all day, and she just sits there and does absolutely nothing. Oh, full of spirituality and your coffee. You know? <laughs> lovely. There are plenty of them around in the body of Jesus Christ today. Absolutely nothing. They won't get down to help in any practical way. They're here to minister spiritually, you see. And it says, you watch women like this. They drift around. They're nice little busybodies. They're absolutely up to date on everything, you know. Finger raised, ready for the cup of coffee, you know. And they come in and and there they are on the doorstep and you have to say, um, oh, hello. Oh, I was just passing. Uh huh, and you think ten hours gone today, and they're going to stay all day. You see, don't receive a younger widow into such a position. For when they've begun to wax wanton against Christ, they'll marry, right? They're husband looking, they're looking for pleasure, and eventually, when they find the right man, they'll marry, having condemnation because they've cast off their first faith, and withal they learn to be idle, never get a job, part-time job below them. Absolutely. They learn to be idle. They wander about from house to house. Not only idle, tattlers also, busybodies, speaking things they ought not. I will therefore, and he makes it sound so easy. I wish it was as easy as this in our day. I will therefore that the younger women marry. Just makes it simple. Oh, just marry. That's it. I wish we could. I wish it was similar today, you know. We have to pray it into existence that they bear children, they guide the house and give none occasion to the adversary to speak reproachfully. Get on with running your house for the Lord. For some are already turned aside after Satan. If any man or woman that believeth have widows, and he's back to family responsibility, let them relieve them and let not the church be charged that it may relieve them that are widows indeed. And by the way, James 1.27 says, true religion and undefiled is this, to care for the widows and to keep yourself unspotted from the world. That's true religion. All right. What about those that we have responsibility to? Do you know in the Old Testament, the law laid down that if you came across a situation that was going wrong, you had to deal with that situation. It might interest you to know that in the Old Testament, uh, the Jews never had a police force. There is no mention of a police force anywhere in Israel. Do you know why? Because it was the responsibility of every individual to be a policeman. Everyone was a policeman. And when you saw a man being beaten up, under the law, you had to go and help him. You see, that was part of your responsibility. And if you didn't, if you turned aside and turned a blind eye to what was going on, you were guilty for what had happened to that man. If you saw a man's ox falling into a ditch 
and it was in danger of dying, and there was no one else around, it's no good you're saying, oh good, there's no one around, and pottering off. No, no. You had to go and pull the thing out. And if you didn't, you were responsible for what happened to that ox, and you had to pay for the ox. It was a good system, wasn't it? If you saw someone's house burning and no one else was around and you crept away without doing anything, you were the man who was responsible for the fire. Now that is individual responsibility. And you were out of fellowship if you didn't face up to your responsibilities. And you know that's the reasoning behind the parable of the Good Samaritan. Did you know that? The man says, well, who is my neighbor? And Jesus says, any man who's in trouble that you come across, he is your neighbor. And he's the chap you've got responsible, responsibility to. And in our fellowship, the reason that we are in these area groups is because you know who your neighbors clearly are. Your local people are your neighbors and anyone else who's in need that you come across. And if you put them on one side, you're denying the faith. You see, you may not be able to help them, but you should put the elders in contact with that person, or you should approach the elders and say, this person is in financial need. Could the general fund help them? Then the elders will look into it. Now, that's our personal responsibility. You don't have to look after everyone in a fellowship our size. You can't. What you have to do is look after those who are in your immediate area or who come to your attention. Do you see? Now, this is part of our responsibility. And in our fellowship, our spiritual growth and our numerical growth are meaningless if we are not looking after one another like this. There are poor in our midst. There will always be poor in our midst, not necessarily financially poor, but people who are dependent upon other people. And we've got to make sure that we actually deal with them aright. Whoever is in need that comes across your path God has appointed that situation for you to actually deal with them. Now, let's just end for today by turning to Galatians and chapter 6. Galatians and chapter 6. And I'm going to read from verse 2 to verse 10. And we'll complete... On that, next time I'm going to spell out the aims of our fellowship and then we're going on to see body ministry and why we meet in the way that we do. Verse, I'm going to begin uh, verse 4. Sorry, I, no, verse 2, that's right. Bear ye one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if a man think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself you think you're so spiritual and you're not doing nitty-gritty things like this, you're an absolute hypocrite. Verse 4, but let every man test his own work. And after today, you've got to test your work. And then shall he have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For every man shall bear his own burden. God will bring you to account for your ministry. Let him that is taught in the word communicate unto him that teacheth in all good things. Right? I make no comment on that. Verse 7. Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. For he that soweth to his own flesh, shall of his own flesh reap corruption. And if you will be self-indulgent, you will have plenty of time to be self-indulgent. You see? 
But he that soweth unto the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life eternal. Verse 9 and 10 of the verses. And let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. It's hard work, but let's keep going and let's not lose the vision. Verse 10. As we therefore have opportunity... Not as you don't have opportunity, don't go looking for it, but when the needs come up that you hear about, let us do good unto all men, including non-Christians for the sake of the gospel, as we'll see next time, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Now, beloved, we've got a lot of thinking to do. And today, I hope you will go away and seek the Lord, A, about your life and about your debts, if you have any, that you will seek God and say, Lord, I'm in debt, but I bow the knee to you. And secondly, as far as our individual, practical, down-to-earth ministries to one another are concerned. God bless you all. Amen.